Hey everyone, and welcome to Eerie Earfuls, as foretold by the Ancient Ones. Each episode, we choose a horror movie double feature to compare and contrast for your entertainment. Fair warning, there will be spoilers. I'm Brandon. And I'm Justin. Let's uh, get to today's double feature. The person picking the double feature rotates from episode to episode. This week was my pick, and I chose Candyman and The Shape of Water. Let's pop in the synopsis tape. Candyman is a 1992 American supernatural horror film written and directed by Bernard Rose, based on the short story The Forbidden by Clive Barker. Helen Lyle is a graduate student in Chicago researching urban legends. She hears a story about the Candyman, who haunts the Cabrini Green projects, and who, by saying his name five times in a mirror, appears and kills the summoner with his hook hand. Helen looks into the case and finds a score of similar murders, deciding to write a thesis on the legend as a coping mechanism for hardships. She and her friend Bernadette visit the projects and meet Anne-Marie and her infant son named Anthony. Helen learns that the Candyman was said to be the son of a slave who gained wealth mass-producing shoes. The son was raised in white society and became a portrait painter until falling in love with a white woman. A lynch mob attacked him, cutting off his painting hand, smearing him with honey, and covering him in bees. His corpse was burned, and his ashes were scattered across what would become Cabrini Green. While continuing her investigations, Helen is attacked by someone wielding a hook, calling himself the Candyman. However, later she encounters the real Candyman, who tells her that her doubts mean he must kill innocents to keep his legend alive. Helen blacks out and wakes up in Anne-Marie's apartment, covered in blood, whose dog has been killed and whose child is missing. Candyman continues to frame Helen for multiple murders, including Bernadette and the psychiatrist assigned to her case once she's committed. Helen escapes the hospital and returns to Cabrini Green to save Anthony, who the Candyman has hidden at the base of a pile of rubble, intended for a bonfire. Helen climbs inside to save the baby, but the residents, unaware of this, set fire to the pile. Helen is able to escape and save the baby, but succumbs to her own burns and dies. The film ends with Helen's grief-stricken and guilt-ridden husband looking at his bathroom mirror and saying Helen's name five times. Helen's spirit appears and kills him with a hook, herself now a vengeful, folkloric spirit like the Candyman. The Shape of Water is a 2017 American romantic supernatural film directed by Guillermo del Toro and written by del Toro and Vanessa Taylor. Eliza Esposito, who was found abandoned as a child with wounds on her neck by the side of a river, is mute and communicates through sign language. She works as a cleaner at a secret government laboratory in Baltimore, Maryland in 1962 at the height of the Cold War. Her only friends are closeted next-door neighbor Giles and her African-American co-worker Zelda. The facility receives a mysterious creature captured from a South American river by Colonel Richard Strickland, who was in charge of the project, to study. Curious about the creature, Eliza discovers it is a humanoid amphibian. She begins visiting him in secret, and the two form a close bond. The U.S. military, hoping to exploit the creature for an American advantage in the space race, decided to kill and dissect it. Simultaneously, Dr. Hofstetler, a Russian spy, is told by his government to kill the creature to keep it out of U.S. hands. Eliza and Hofstetler decide to free the creature with the help of Giles and Zelda. Eliza keeps the creature in her bathtub, planning to release him when rain floods a nearby canal, but Strickland eventually deduces that Hofstetler was part of the escape and tortures him into revealing that Zelda and Eliza were part of the breakout as well. Meanwhile, Eliza and Giles learn the creature is able to heal through touch, mending a cut on Giles' forearm and restoring hair to his balding head. Strickland arrives at Zelda's home and threatens her until her husband reveals Eliza has been housing the creature. Eliza is tipped off by Zelda and hurries the creature to the canal, but Strickland soon catches up with her. He arrives and shoots the creature and Eliza, killing them both. The creature, however, revives himself and heals his wounds, slashing Strickland's throat before jumping into the canal with Eliza's body. While underwater, the creature heals Eliza, mending not only her gunshot wound, but revealing the scars on her neck are actually gills. The film ends with Giles stating that he believes Eliza and the creature remained in love and lived happily ever after. Okay, so why did you pick these two movies? So I chose these two movies for two reasons. One... They are both, in their own way, romances. Candyman is sort of a gothic romance, and Shape of Water follows, in ways, a sort of Hollywood romance, which is referenced throughout the movie. And also because both of them use their monsters as metaphors and allegories for minority experiences in the United States. To expand on that more, Candyman is the son of a slave. Uh, His story is a little more explicit in that he is the direct result of racial actions. He is lynched by a lynch mob, and so he's sort of bringing revenge on present-day America. Whereas The Shape of Water, it's a little more allegorical because the Gill Man doesn't directly correspond to any specific minority. He's more just treated poorly alongside the main characters who are also minorities, 
who are treated poorly. And so you're able to reflect on the similarities in their treatment. I think in like a little bit of a roundabout way, the fishman or whatever his name is in The Shape of Water. Actually, they refer to him on set as Charlie, which is the name oh. of the mascot for the tuna of the sea. <laughs> so may, maybe worth calling I, him Charlie. I see. So Charlie. <laughs> oh, are you sure Charlie's not the starkest tuna fish? Yeah, maybe it's Starkest. It's one of the I was going to say, brands. Chicken of the Sea Chicken has a mermaid. Yeah. Just saying. You're, you're right, Starkest. Okay, I was going to say. Anyway, I think that Charlie could be, in a more roundabout way, representative of people that have, like, physical deformities, you know? Like, those really rare one-in-a-million kind of diseases, like people that have, like, excessive hair all over their body or, you know, like the elephant man or something like that, who can be seen as monstrous and not human and their intelligence and their emotional qualities can be forgotten just strictly based on appearance. I, I mean, sure. I, but I think that, that Charlie is sort of a stand in for all types of minorities, because the thing about being a minority in a country like the United States is that your humanity is denied like you said the folks with disfigurements or with um with disabilities their humanity gets denied folks with like that carry that have canes for example able-bodied people will scoff at their pain and say like oh you you're just being lazy you don't really need that cane black folks uh, their humanity was denied for centuries and even taught in you know even in like churches they would Pastors would write entire sermons about how black folks were descended from Cain or from some other nonsense to justify why they didn't have to treat them like people. In fact, we even talked about in the Frankenstein episode how an entire scientific branch for a while, the phrenology, was basically yep. developed so that they could justify, no, see, black yep. people aren't really humans because reasons. So yep. Charlie is definitely uh, sort of a stand-in of all of that. I, I do agree I only mentioned that it could be like the people with physical deformities because you've already got three other people in the cast that represent other minorities, like people with disabilities, people of color, and LGBTQ plus people. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I'd like anyway, to that's all agree. I was going to say. Sorry. So, digging into the monsters as minorities thing a little bit, it was really interesting the way the two movies had similar ways of dealing with them. So, on the one hand, Candyman is a little more explicit in the origins of the monster, but the actual plot of the movie is a little more abstract in that Cabrini Green sort of symbolizes uh, the trauma of white supremacy on minorities. Cabrini Green where uh, is the project that's eventually built where the Candyman's corpse ashes were scattered. The reason those projects exist is because it is in America, there, there's been this long history of housing discrimination. Things like redlining. Redlining is the practice of denying key services like home loans and insurance or increasing their costs to residents in a defined geographical area. The reason it's called redlining is because as part of the New Deal, uh, whenever companies were starting to decide where places could be safely insured and where they couldn't, they would cover those areas red. And coincidence of coincidences, all the places where insurance would be not great were where black folks lived, which is why it was called redlining. Versus like Shape of Water, which was a little more uh, explicit. It was a little more um, Hollywood cartoonish racism. Like, uh, yeah. you have one man who stands in as a symbol for white supremacy and the patriarchy in Strickland. He is sort of the the amalgamation of all of those problems. He is defeated by, you know, minorities banding together. But it's also, it's a little more explicitly about those specific things because they show that kind of discrimination on display. And it's like specifically lampshaded, whereas in Candyman, it's more subtly mentioned like when Helen gets attacked in the bathrooms and after the police come to save her from that guy who said he was the candy man she says it's ridiculous 
dozens of murders that have been happening and the cops don't bother to look into it, but as soon as one white woman is attacked, the police show up and sweep the entire building. It was funny how little they did to, like, upscale those apartments because she was basically, like, showing that girl around the apartment and she was like, look at this. These are all cinder block walls and all they did was cover them in plaster. Boom. Automatically, it makes it ritzier. But, like, there were still traces of that past there, mm-hmm. like with the medic- medicine cabinet where she pulls it out and you can see it just goes to the other medicine cabinet. And I thought that was, I thought it was, like, a really interesting um, kind of sort of like mini allegory for gentrification i just thought it was it was kind of cool how on the surface her apartment was you know very like this is fancy or whatever but really if you look past like the very thin veneer of what little upscaling they did you can see the past and it kind of just reminded me of the history of America Definitely. in general. Yeah, for sure. Because it was because we're always like, America's great. And then you look past that thin veneer of everything is great. And then you're like, oh, there's actually a lot of lot of problems. Well, I mean, or yeah, you can even, very easily see where we've been, you know. Definitely. Even nowadays, you can see like situations where people are like, oh, I don't know what you're complaining about. Black Lives Matter. All that stuff was in the past. That was in the mm-hmm. 1800s or 60s or whatever. And then... If you actually take the time to look at, say, recent history, you can see that black folks are categorically poorer than white folks, or black folks have a harder time, uh, they have to make more to live in worse neighborhoods, or the fact that they are killed more often by police where white folks are taken in, and so that it's one of those things where you can say, oh, we're, we're good, we got rid of Jim Crow, so everything's fixed, and it's this thin veneer of whitewash over the ugly truth. Mm-hmm. Like I said, part of it was that both of these movies explore minorities and their difficulties in the United States historically and contemporarily, but also um, their their romances. They're odd, though. Um, yeah. <laughs> Candyman is explicitly a gothic romance. So there's this long history of people being romantically interested in monsters there's usually kind of two different ways to approach the story there's the you want to change the monster i can fix him i can make him better the other side of the coin is uh the desire to embrace that which society abhors there is this draw to them by people people seem really interested in acceptance of those dark things um not necessarily always rejecting but even saying like yeah this person has these dark things about them, but isn't that kind of what makes them cool? Don't we kind of love that about them? Yeah, I did not get... <laughs> when I watched The Shape of Water, obviously, the way it is set up and everything, she kind of has a fascination with the monster. And, well, I should say, whatever, Charlie, I guess, the Gill Man. And uh, she has a fascination with him. Obviously, anybody would. And it's a gentle fascination to kind of see what it knows and if it can learn and things like that. And she discovers that it does enjoy, you know, music and it can learn to, you know, speak and she enjoys its company. So it kind of develops, you know, into a romance from both sides. I think that's pretty clear. Candyman is very one-sided when I watched it. Like, I did not get any kind of desire from Helen like she just seemed to me like I mean you know she was kind of stuck in her academic stuff and she was trying to be taken seriously and all Candyman wanted was he was like I just want you I just want you baby and he like hypnotizes her and like all kinds of stuff and I was like this is very one-sided it feels almost like (laughs) like you know uh what is that you know, where somebody eventually becomes infatuated, like, with their kidnapper. Stockholm Syndrome. It kind of felt like that. Yeah, Stockholm Syndrome. And it's, I don't know. So that is definitely... I I mean, I did enjoy it, because it kind of reminded me of, like, the Phantom of the Opera, where, you know, the Phantom is aggressively pursuing, what's her name? Christine. Mm -hmm. And uh, she is fascinated with him, but does not reciprocate those feelings 
So it is very Phantom of the Opera-esque, except way more like intense. <laughs> <laughs> so that's actually ties into the, the concept of the Gothic romance. Because in the Gothic romance, there are specific tropes that are hit. One of them is the distressed heroine, which Helen definitely is. She's in a loveless marriage. Her husband is cheating on her and is sort of openly doing it and almost like daring her to say something about it. Yep. And uh, there's also the Byronic hero, which is based on Lord Byron. Um, uh, it's meant to. It's sort of the precursor of the anti-hero. And uh, you can see that it's, it's meant to be like a hero, but with these sort of darker qualities to him. And you can sort of see that in the way that Candyman is presented. One of the things I find remarkable about that, though, like you're right. If you if you take the story completely at face value and you apply like modern, respectable, socially health, health, healthy ideas of romance, it's horrifying. He's like murdering people and like cajoling her into becoming his victim. But it's a really interesting take. The way he's inviting her to join him. He says, be my victim. That's Mm -hmm. not, it's not like he just kills her. He's not Freddy Krueger, like hunting her down. He is asking her, join me in death. We can be, we can live together in infamy, in legend. Like on the one hand, yes, he's also slowly murdering everyone around her to kind of sweeten the deal and make her convince her to do it but in a way if you approach it from that sort of dream logic of immortality through stories he is setting her up to have her own immortality like he is killing those people but he's doing it in such a way that she always gets blamed for it so that at the end when she does succumb to death she herself is now immortal he has sort of given her this gift of being able to exist beyond time through fear and through stories. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, when you were talking about that, you know, he was like, be my victim and all this other stuff. And I was like, I mean, yeah, in some of those things, it does seem kind of like a romance. And then, yeah, he's like, oh, you don't want to? Well, I'm going to murder everyone around you and frame it to where it's impossible for you to get out of it. So you basically have no other choice other than, you know, like join me or spend the rest of your time in an institution <laughs> or something. And I'm like, ah, happy commitment. Icky. You're going to be right? committed either way, committed to me or committed in a hospital. Yeah. So it did. It it felt like a very one sided romance. And it felt like um, an extremely sinister heightened version of the Phantom of the Opera. Yeah, I could see that. I also think like there are ways that the movie frames him to make him romantic. One, it's Tony Todd, and he was a very handsome motherfucker back in the day. Not that he's not I mean, now, he still but is. yeah. And he he's not even framed threateningly. Like when Freddy Krueger is introduced, he cuts his own fingers off and stretches his arms really wide and like crawl, scratches the walls. And all Tony Todd does is just walk forward and say, yep. be my victim. And the way they frame Helen's response to that, it's a soft focus close up, just like an old Hollywood romance. Like he's introduced feet first, which on the one hand is because his father was a shoemaker, but also... It's the way that, you know, they would often introduce, like, love interests back in old Hollywood. You'd start at the feet, you know, pan up to the face, and then do a close-up of the person reacting like, oh my god, so handsome, so pretty. And that's Mm -hmm. her reaction. Yeah, I thought that was, that was, those scenes were really interesting, especially when I found out why Bernard Rose did that. So, apparently... He came up with this idea that she would be hypnotized every time that she came into contact with him Mm -hmm. in order to remove the horror movie cliche of excessive screaming, especially in women. Mm -hmm. And so every time she has a confrontation with Candyman, she's always like hypnotized and it's kind of in this like trance like state kind of thing. And that also, you know, adds to the idea of romancing the monster or being romanced by the monster Mm -hmm. aggressively (laughs) (laughs) so uh one of the things that i wanted to talk about was the different approaches to the source material 
uh, that both of these movies used. Candyman is based on the Clive Barker short story, The Forbidden. And apparently in the original short story, Helen is doing a thesis on graffiti in Liverpool. And she notices disturbing graffiti in an abandoned building that makes reference to the urban legend Candyman. Further research convinces her that he is the cause of several recent murders and mutilations. And she eventually encounters the Candyman and gains like notoriety as becoming his last victim. And that kind of happens in the movie, although because I haven't read the short story, I don't know if, you know, the Candyman in the short story is like an actual, you know, like entity, like a ghost or something like that, or if it's just an actual murderer that's taken up that moniker. Because it kind of happens in the movie, like she becomes a victim of Candyman, but it turns out to be a guy and his crew that's just adopted that name in order to inspire fear. And he really has, you know, killed people and, and whatever, but he just beats her up because she's investigating. It's later revealed that the neighborhood isn't really patrolled by police, except in instances of white crime, which you mentioned earlier. That's kind of why I guess he would use that is to inspire fear. Couple that with the lack of police presence would basically make him unstoppable kind of but then later in the movie you know she becomes a victim of the real candy man and she becomes an urban legend by uh, because her husband says her name five times in the mirror and then she suddenly appears and kills him so um i thought it was really interesting that while um when adapting the story bernard rose changes the setting from liverpool in the uk to chicago uh, the story was originally set in Liverpool and was about segregation and the culture of uh, poor urban areas like you can see in, you know, because uh, Liverpool is like an old uh, manufacturing town, um, harbor town kind of thing. And that translates very well to Chicago because Chicago is very similar. Um, it's like an old manufacturing town, meat packing town, things like that. Bernard Rose changed the setting to Chicago based on its dynamic architecture and the large amount of prejudice that was, you know, still exists there. Not that it doesn't in Liverpool, but I'm assuming it would be, you know, more uh, digestible for American audiences to understand what was happening in Chicago. While scouting film locations in Chicago, he chose the Cabrini Green Projects as the setting because of its reputation as a housing project with poor construction and a lot of violence and high robbery rates and things like that. And it was also the perfect location because it's located fairly closely to high class neighborhoods in real life, meaning that Helen could live by and she could feel isolated from the chaos, but also close enough to, you know, like see it from her window basically. Mm -hmm. um, so it's close enough to be real, but she can still feel safe and isolated. Mm -hmm. Another thing was, I, I don't believe there's a, the murder of Ruthie Jean does not happen in the short story. The murder of Ruthie Jean in the movie is based on the murder of Ruthie Mae McCoy, who was a resident of Chicago's Abbott Holmes project. And uh, her killer was an intruder and he did enter her apartment through an opening behind the medicine cabinet just like if it was <laughs> depicted in the movie so huh. uh, life imitating or art imitating life a little too creepily there i was like <laughs> this was interesting uh, i thought uh, because in the shape of water is primarily uh, based the story the structure of the story is uh, loosely based on the 1954 film creature from the black lagoon and it was inspired by uh, del toro's memories of wanting to see the gill man and uh, Kay lawrence succeed in their romance because he always thought they should be romantically involved. Obviously, it was a romance between those two and everybody else just wasn't seeing it. And he actually approached Universal in order to do a direct remake of Creature in which, you know, he did that. Uh, but the studio executives rejected the concept. Well, they had the, to get their dark universe off the ground, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I guess they kind of regret those, you know, six Academy Awards or whatever it won now. So, anywho... It was also interesting because, uh, you know, Candyman takes place in the modern time. The the source material takes place in modern times, and at least at the time anyway. And same with the film. It takes place mm -hmm. in, like, 
at, in modern Chicago when it was shot in 1991, 1992, that kind yeah. of stuff. Creature from the Black Lagoon also takes place in quote unquote modern times because it was like a film of 1954. It would have been mm-hmm. like present times. And Guillermo del Toro made a conscious decision to change the setting to the 1960s Cold War era. And he specifically said it was to counteract today's heightened tensions. And a quote from him was saying, If I say once upon a time in 1962, it becomes a fairy tale for troubled times. People can lower their guard a little bit more and listen to the story and listen to the characters and talk about the issues rather than the circumstances of the issues. And this was a sentiment that Octavia Spencer agreed to. Because I always wondered, uh, for me, ever since I saw her in The Help I was always like, is she always just going to play like cleaning ladies and stuff like that? Because for me, it kind of seemed like she was kind of typecast after that, maybe. Mm -hmm. But she, uh, Guillermo del Toro, actually wrote that part for her. And he wanted her to read the script before she agreed to do it. And, you know, she loved it. And she was like, oh, absolutely. I want to do this. And she agreed with that sentiment of it being a fairy tale for troubled times. Uh, And she has a quote as saying, uh, troubled times back then, but some of the themes are very, very relevant today. The quote unquote otherness of it all. And it's funny that he wrote two main characters who can't speak. And then the people he chooses to use as their voice are people who represent very disenfranchised groups, such as an African-American woman and a closeted gay man. Mm -hmm. And she says that's a testament to who Guillermo del Toro is as a person. To him, no one is invisible. And so uh, the well, the rest of the quote is the 60s people who look like me and who were part of the LGBTQ community had no civil rights and were disenfranchised people. So a fable for troubled times, it even applies today. And yeah, I thought that was it was it was really interesting that he made a conscious choice to set it, you know, back in a different time to kind of make the story more palatable, I guess, so that people wouldn't worry too much about the politics of today. And Candyman does the exact opposite of that. It sets the quote-unquote fairy tale in modern times, and it makes you deal with all of the troubles of today because it's directly mm. confronting those issues. You know, it's funny about that, though, because they both both of them explicitly take the source material and then apply a, an expl- at times, explicitly racially-based take on it. Mm-hmm. Candyman, you know, like like you said, was about class, and then they specifically, in setting it in America, said, well, the underclass is almost uniformly black folks because of white supremacy, so let's just do that. And then tying the Candyman's origins into slavery, and in Shape of Water, in a way, he takes that, that old-timey setting to to take you off guard a little bit let let you let let your guard down cuz oh it's a period story it's from it's about the past but then the things he talks about are things that are still very relevant as the movie goes along and those themes start getting presented it becomes harder to ignore those those subjects and that's kind of represented in Giles because uh Giles is very very obsessed with old movies with specifically like old classic Hollywood movies. And he constantly has like an old musical on or something where he can watch and and sort of live back in the day. And he has all these stories and anecdotes about things that he's heard about on set and about how the actors were and things like that. And then one day, whenever Eliza comes home and she turns on the TV, there's a news broadcast on and it's some police brutality story it's it's footage of black folks being attacked by white police and like hoses being turned on them and he explicitly is like turn that off turn that off turn that off i don't i don't, I don't want to see that i don't want everyone want to see that and then it turns on to some squishy happy musical that he can ignore the stuff happening and right. it's not until he gets his own sad moments of oppression where it finally becomes personal for him and he's able to identify with the with charlie's struggles because he uh he hits on that waiter in the pie shop and when the guy one reacts all disgusted at the idea that you gay get away mm. and then two is super racist to this black couple that comes in and tells them like the whole restaurant's been reserved get out you're not you can't come in here even though it's empty that's when giles is finally like okay fine i will help you break out the the fish man because if you say that he's important, I will I will believe you. 
a familiar topic that we've discussed before on here whenever we talked about urban legend and theater of blood Candyman is exp- the movie is specifically about uh theater of uh, <laughs> yes it is Candyman the movie <laughs> is specifically about urban legends uh whereas the short story is about gossip and rumors it's not necessarily an urban legend as much as it's gossip i love the way that Candyman is sort of about urban uh, urban legends and and exposing a a deeper truth through this fantastical story by sharing the stories of Candyman, they are also sharing the stories of racial trauma of the dangers of living in areas where uh, police presence is either lacking or over present uh the the dangers of poverty and in the shape of water instead of using urban legends it's more folk tales it's there are moments of these fan- there there are these moments in the movie where overall the movie tends to be relatively realistic there are these moments of like fairy tale or folklore like fantasticalness where like the moment when Eliza floods the bathroom and she's able to sort of swim around with the creature for a while is this moment where like that's this is not how water and buildings work but it <laughs> it, it reveals the love and the connection that they have and the connection she has with water and and through doing the fantastical it gives you a deeper truth about her relationship with this creature at the end of the movie it's not necessarily clear like did whether she actually died being shot by strickland and that's how she went on whether she actually is part fish person whether she became part fish person because of her love of the creature because it so easily could be the same thing as the handsome prince kissed her and woke her up or because of true love the beast turned into a human and revealed who he really was because you kissed this frog now you have the handsome prince it's that same sort of like it doesn't make sense but it doesn't have to because it it's digging for a deeper truth than than actual facts would reveal one of the things i really like about both of these movies and this was not necessarily part of my original reason for pairing them but it was just one of those happy accidents that tends to happen whenever we do these episodes which is (laughs) both of these stories are romance stories in which the woman main character is disrespected by broader society men don't take her seriously she's talked down to her in her profession she's not respected and through her relationship with this supernatural otherworldly male creature uh, eventually, she is transformed into an entity similar to the male creature, and in that transformation, reaches this better existence, this better life. Like you could argue that Helen, at the end of the movie, casts off that unfulfilling old life where she's trying and struggling to to get respect but her husband doesn't care about her and he's openly cheating on her and her peers and mentors don't care about her like her her professor openly mocks her but at the end she is feared she is eternal because she now lives in legend and the same thing with eliza she's mute no one respects her except for her like a handful of friends her bosses are all rude to her and mean and at the end she's able to become join the the charlie in in this other world where she seems to be more herself and she after having this connection of to water throughout the whole movie she's able to sort of um live that um i kind of wanted to talk about both the symbolism that's utilized in both films and the music and how it kind of uh, backs up that symbolism. So um, both of the films obviously use literary symbols. One of the most prominent examples in The Shape of Water is the implementation of the color green. And it's literally like everywhere. It's like the wallpaper of the apartments. It's the tile and the in the bathrooms at the government facility. It's just different shades of green. It's Michael Shannon's new car. It's the jello that uh, Giles is trying to draw in the advertisement. He, he draws it as red and he's like, no, you got to change it to green. Green is the color of the future. And so that really stood out to me because everything is teal green, some shade of it. And so I was like, I, I want to know what the significance of that is. Even just like recently uh, in the 18th and 19th centuries, green was associated with the romantic movement in literature and art. And like the German writer Goethe 
that was like his favorite color. He said it was the most relaxing color and that was what everybody's bedroom should be. And green has a lot of symbolic qualities beyond that. It's often associated with nature and vivacity and life and hope, youth and experience, jealousy and envy, love and sexuality, you know. And like in the Victorian era, green was often associated with homosexuality. Uh, Green was often associated in men with homosexuality, which I thought was weird because uh, it was really popular in the Victorian era and afterwards due to, you know, the different discoveries of uh, different pigments, specifically radium, which was super popular and put into like everything. It, granted, made a lot of people sick because it is radioactive, but still. <laughs> it was you got to suffer for your art. Yeah. Going further up the timeline, green in the 50s, or well, really like the 20s through the 50s, was like this color of the other, and it was often associated with monsters. For example, Bella Lugosi, he wore like a slightly green-tinted makeup, when he played Dracula on Broadway in 1927 to 1928 and the production stills for the Bride of uh, Frankenstein, the early posters, they always showed the monsters green and pretty much every time after that, that there was advertising for Frankenstein, the monster was always green. And then um, even beyond that, you've got green is particularly in America associated with social status prosperity and the dollar Mm -hmm. um and this was really super popular in the 50s and the 60s and like everything you could possibly imagine was available in green and was really popular and like different shades of green really popular were like avocado and teal for cars and appliances and even like furniture everything was you know available in green And so that was kind of why that guy was like, it's the color of the future, because the 50s were such a prosperous time and green was such a popular color that obviously that's going to bleed over into the 60s. So it's it's funny you're bringing up the the information like that, how green was a symbol of like nature, because what I noticed wasn't just specifically the color green, because I noticed that color green thing, too. And I was like, what's going on there, man? But what I noticed even more than that is it's green and red that interplay throughout the movie. Eliza's uniform is green, but after she first has sex with the creature and sort of starts feeling happy and like sort of owning herself, she explicitly buys these red shoes that she was looking at at the beginning of the movie and wearing this red hairband and standing out. I read an article where they were talking to Guillermo del Toro and he said that red is meant to symbolize romance and passion. And so anytime that there are moments of like swells of emotion, there's red present. Uh, Yeah, I love the color. Thank you for bringing that up. It was so cool. I thought it was uh, really interesting, uh, if you could believe it, that water also features prominently in the shape of water. I know. I know. Surprising. But it's actually, you know, pretty prominent in the movie. And it's also a really interesting uh, literary symbol because water can mean so many different things in literature, kind of like how you know, actual water can exist, can exist in many states across the world and, Mm -hmm. you know, things like that. Water is most often associated with cleansing and the feeling of freedom. And it's also often associated as like a symbol of power because it can do so much, you know, it can, it can be turned into steam, which powers engines. It can be, you know, in, liquid form and flow through dams and you know or Mm -hmm. hydroelectric dams you know Mm -hmm. and so it has the power to both create life and destroy life so it's often you know a symbol of power and um and i think that's you know fairly present in the movie because you know it's because the water you know is like everywhere (laughs) like like i was trying to contextualize it last night and i was like oh my god it's literally everywhere like it's like in her morning routine like you know she'll she'll boil eggs and then she fills up the tub and then she masturbates in the tub while the eggs are you know cooking and then she shines her shoes and she uses like a little green brush and you know and some water to shine her shoes and, you know, she's a cleaning lady, which involves using lots of water to clean things. Yep. And she falls, you know, she was found by a river as a child. It's just so many things 
and not to mention, you know, it takes place in Baltimore, which is like close to the sea. And also in the time of year that it takes place, it's like a very rainy time of year. So things are like throughout the movie are often damp, rainy, Mm -hmm. foggy, you know, so water is like everywhere. And uh, the thing that I thought was most interesting was um, the fact that the water is reflected and exemplified in the score. I don't know how to pronounce his name, but it was written by Alexander Desplat or Desplat. I'm not sure how to pronounce his name. He's French. So that could be the reason. I am not French. I am very white American. You just need to talk through your nose more. Alexandre Desplat. (laughs) I believe that in The Shape of Water, the composer is, you know, using the water as sort of a symbol of love. He specifically cites in this article that I read the feeling um, associating love with the sensation of submerging yourself in warm water. And so uh, he does that a lot, particularly in the opening phrases, which are, uh, for me, as soon as I heard it, I was like, oh, this is French. Because French music has a very um, strange, like uh, kind of an open sound where chords don't always resolve or they incorporate lots of ninths, thirteenths and above that to where they just kind of keep going. And he uses an arpeggiated melody that consistently rolls forward kind of like waves in an ocean. And all of his melodies are very buoyant, you could say. And they um, ooze with affection, you could also say. (laughs) And uh, it's also interesting that, you know, music is also like water and that it can take on so many different shapes and that it can emphasize certain things and, you know, it can create certain things and also when used incorrectly destroy what, you know, like a a mood or a feeling or something, you know, in Eliza's apartment. Mm -hmm. Because her her wall was going to just be like a blank wall. And uh, he wanted his art department to to emphasize things because the art department apparently is his his favorite department. Like if oh, it's yeah. it one it is it's like effects and art are his two favorite departments because he loves the artistry of film. And so he had them paint this mural of waves crashing on the wall, and then they when they added a bunch of like extra layers and deterioration and distress to it. It blends in, and so it looks mostly like a blank wall with maybe some, like, dust swirls on it. But if you look really closely, you can see these, like, crashing waves. So she's even surrounded by water in her own apartment, but, like, at the start of the movie. The most prominent symbolism that I think that's found in Candyman is the use of bees. And obviously, you know, um, it's it is important to the story because in, you know, during his lynching, you know, his painting hands cut off his shoves a hook in it and then they cover him with honey and he's stunned to death by bees they kind of take on a spiritual element sort of you know because they follow him basically everywhere and they appear with him when he appears places i think that's very intentionally all kind of pointing towards biblical references to bees and uh one of the most obvious ones or one of the first ones i believe is in the book of judges and it's like literally one of the last judges in the book of judges which is samson who you should know from the story of samson and delilah is introduced and which also gets brought up in shape of water yes it does and uh you know samson is supposed to have like superhuman strength and at one point in the book i don't remember where because i haven't read it at one point he tears apart a, a lion with his bare hands and after a time he returns to the carcass and he sees a swarm of bees have nested inside the lion's carcass and they are you know They've created like a beehive inside and they're creating honey. The character of Candyman shares some similarities to Samson in the fact that he is like super all powerful and, you know, was, you know, before he was cast down, a very important person, very similar to Samson. Samson was a judge until, you know, uh, he's his ultimate undoing by Delilah. 
which kind of happens to Candyman too because he falls in love with a white woman and then he can't do that so you know in the in the old days and so he gets lynched mm-hmm. um but you know uh what's what I think is really interesting is that bees are often used in Christianity as symbols of like community and personal power like um Christian monks they often in the early days would live in like these beehive like huts to symbolize you know the aim of harmonious community living and things like that saint ambrose he was a bishop of milan and he became one of the most influential ecclesiastical figures of the fourth century and there's a legend often his little you know crest has bees incorporated into it because there's a legend that as an infant a swarm of bees settled on his face while he was laying in the cradle and they left behind a drop of honey which is you know used in the bible a lot to convey like sweetness and you know the the good parts of life and things like that rewards yes and like uh, heaven's the land of milk and honey yes exactly and uh so with saint Ambrose, his father considered this swarm of bees settling on his face to be a sign of his future eloquence and uh, that's kind of where the phrase honeyed tongue comes from oh and um, for this reason uh, bees and beehives appear in St. Ambrose's you know uh, shields and things like that. To me I kind of think this biblical link with bees and Candyman is cemented in so many scenes throughout Candyman. The residents of Cabrini Green, uh, they might be under unusual persecution due to their location and their circumstances and things like that that they can't help. But for many of them, it is still home and Mm -hmm. it is a place to live and home is often equated with a feeling of sanctuary. And of course, sanctuary is like the main portion of the church where you go to do your worship. The really interesting thing is that there are depictions all over Cabrini Green of Candyman and references to him, writings on the walls and things like that, which parallels like the depictions of saints in the stained glass windows of a lot of cathedrals, you know, all over the United States, um, or, well, all over the world, not Mm -hmm. just the United States. Candyman even references himself in this kind of, like, spiritual godlike way when he's talking to helen because he's talking about you know like our congregation and our names will be written on a thousand walls and things like that so and then it's further you know like it's it's basically brought to home plate by the score of philip glass who uses a pretty bare bones structure to create this kind of sacred sonic landscape and you can tell that just by like the opening theme he's basically just using pipe organ and a choir it is fascinating to me that two films they both rely on symbolism that would seem to contrast itself with the subject matter and yet it helps to enhance the ideas of, you know, the monsters and things like that and their different qualities, and it creates a more enjoyable viewing and listening experience. You know, it's funny, you bring up that uh, the bit where Candyman sort of talks um, in a sort of Christian, almost pastoral, ministerial way. I don't remember the exact line of dialogue, but you're, you're right. There's a moment where he, when he talks about, how, like, it's, it's, it, you know, it his existence is tied to belief and there's a sort of Christ-like quality in a way to, Mm -hmm. to aspects of him because he appears to her and he's sort of wrathful. And he says, you doubted me. I came for you because you doubted me. And he says that like, because she doubted, he has to reassert himself and he's performing these sort of dark miracles uh, to, to, renew faith in him there's a there's a line i think where he mentioned something about i don't remember if he called the residents of cabrini green his flock or his congregation it was something like that though where he he talked about 
Yeah, I remember writing down the words our congregation and I was like, I need to look up that line later because that was like super strong. Like, you know, the, the whole movie, I was like, man, his voiceover stuff is like super churchy. Like he considers himself, you know, kind of like a god, which, which I guess is, he kind of is. Yeah. Um, and that's funny because that's that's what they said. That's what the natives believed that uh, Charlie was in The Shape of Water. They believed that he was a god that they worshipped. And he kind of, he also kind of has a Christ-like portrayal because he is killed by Strickland, shot multiple times in the chest, and then he just sort of comes back on his own, wakes up, pulls a Neo, wakes yep. up, heals himself, <laughs> and then goes over and cuts Strickland's throat because, motherfucker, step to the king. <laughs> In fact, Strickland even says, Strickland is actually, that's, that's funny, because uh, Strickland is actually extremely religious and constantly talks about the Bible in a sort of bastardized, dumb, yeah. dummy way. Uh, but he talks about, like, he talks about Zelda and her middle name is D for Delilah. And he talks about the, the Bible and he compares himself to Samson because he mentions that Samson, after being disgraced and, and left for dead, calls upon the Lord to regrant his strength one last time. And then he brings the he grabs the columns of the temple and brings it down on everyone inside and killing everyone and himself. And he said like something to the effect of like he may have he may he was gonna die, but he'd take every last one of those motherfuckers down with him. And then he rips <laughs> his own fingers off. But oh, then yeah. he gets he gets his sort of mama white moment where for being so convinced that he is the biblical hero of this story, he gets his throat slashed by Charlie and goes down like a punk just like mama white did <laughs> okay i think that about does it if you want to join the discussion and share your own thoughts with us hit us up online we're on twitter at eerie underscore earfuls our email is eerie.earfuls at gmail.com and our website is eerie earfuls all one word dot wordpress you can subscribe to us on Google Play, iTunes, and many other places. If you like the show, please spread the word. And if you're feeling extra generous, we'd love it if you left us a review. Our theme music is Bobby Yaga by Kevin McLeod. Our synopsis music is Anxiety and Night of Chaos, also both by Kevin McLeod, licensed under a Creative Commons license. You can find more of that in the notes. Find more of his music at incompetech.com. Thank you for listening, and stay scared, everyone. The U.S. military, hoping to exploit the creature from an American advantage, hoping to ex, hoping to ex, fucking god, hoping, 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 And then there's the other side of the corn. Wait. And then there's the other side of the coin. The other side yeah. of the corn. Oh, <laughs> uh, the thing about the other side of the corn is that there's always another side because it's 360. <laughs> yeah, it's just continuous. <laughs>